Okay, we come to Hebrews once again, now to chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. If you're visiting with us, the anchor on the front of our bulletin is sets forth the basic theme of Hebrews because these people were in danger. By the way, that's, uh, cha- that's page 1006 if you want to use the Bible that's in the pew. And I, I recommend you open your Bible and just keep it there because we're going to look at uh, all parts of this passage. And it helps so much if you can just look at the verses as we talk about them. But this sets forth the theme because he's writing to people who were at risk of abandoning Christianity, at risk of abandoning the faith because of rising persecution. And so he's urging them, setting forth the the beauties and glories of Christ so that those beauties and glories would hold them fast. That they would see having such a treasure, it's willing to lose, we're willing to lose anything and everything for this treasure. So he just is constantly setting forth the treasure of Christ as he does in this passage we're dealing with. This, just for your information, this section began back in chapter 8, especially with the quote of, uh, from Jeremiah in chapter 8, where he talked about the new covenant and how he would remember their sins no more. And then he launched into a whole discussion about dealing with sin and the forgiveness of sins and how does he come about to remember our sins no more. And this is the end of that section that we'll read. We're going to read actually through verse 18. And you'll see at the end of this passage that he comes again to that Jeremiah quote of the new covenant and where he says, I will remember their sins no more. So you see, he began with the remember their sins. He ends with this and everything in between is about how we get there. How does he do this? How do we get to this point where our sins are remembered no more? Okay. You know, we sang this hymn, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But it it was Christ. This is taken from this passage, this hymn we sang. And you'll, you'll catch it as we read. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired... But a body you've prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
And when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He abolishes the first, that is those sacrifices, in order to establish the second of his doing the will of the Father. And by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected For all time, those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, enable us to see the beauty and the glory of Christ, that you may be adored and loved and served with glad hearts. Amen. In our uh, relationships uh, with each other, we are governed so much more than we realize by fear and a terrible loss of dignity that manifests itself in so many ways in our relationships. And we just hardly even see the connection in our angry outbursts, in our seeking to control one another by anger or nagging or criticism or just having to be in control or in control of our environment because we're so scared by how we've been hurt in the past. And we may be manipulating our situation uh, or we have a fear of reaching out to people we don't know because we're governed by this loss of dignity and, and fear. And sometimes it shows itself in our pride, our unwillingness to admit that we're wrong. We can't openly confess our weaknesses to each other because we're driven by this fear and loss of dignity. We're trying always clawing to preserve our dignity before one another or establish our dignity to one another. And it may sound strange, but the only true dignity and the only secure whole identity as a human being that you can have is having a clean conscience In the presence of God. And along with that is being in a fellowship of people that have clean consciences in the presence of God. There's no other place, no other source for a dignity that begins to enable you to pour yourself out for people instead of being this caving in cavity. That was the problem with all the continual sacrifices of bulls and goats in the Old Testament. They couldn't do anything. That's what he says in verse 2. You see, he says, they can never make 
perfect those who draw near. Or, no, verse 2. He said, if they had worked, then there would no longer be this consciousness of sin. Literally, it's a conscience of sin. If they had done their job, there wouldn't be this consciousness of sin. And if you just look across the page, if you're in the Pew Bible to the top of the page, uh, it's, it, it says it, these sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That was the problem. There was a constant consciousness of sin. There was never a clearing of the conscious, of the conscience. In other words, this could, and, and this is our problem with each other, not having a clean conscience. So here's the question. How can we have this clean conscience before God? First, we have a clean conscience because, as the text says in verse 14, Christ perfects us. It's an astounding statement, isn't it, in verse 14? By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, the word perfect has a pretty bad rap, right? Person looks at you, criticizes you, all the while blind to her old baggage, and you say, she thinks she's so perfect, right? Oh, she's just walking around, little Miss Perfect. And of course, the spin doctors get in on it, right? Little Miss, Little Miss, Little Miss can't be wrong, right? We don't want to be known as that person, the perfect person. Nobody wants to be called perfect in that sense. And even now in a Christian sense, if somebody came up to you and said, you've been a believer 30 years, I bet you're kind of closing in on perfect. And after a few expletives, they say, I guess not, you know, (laughs) But you're just shocked at that, right? You're just saying, oh, I'm not even in the ballpark of perfect. Nowhere close to perfect. Even as Paul said in Philippians 3, he's striving for that. So what does he mean by this perfect? What is the content of this statement that he makes us perfect? After all, it even says, this, the, the, the tense of this word is The thing that says it's been accomplished and it continues till now. You've been perfected and and you continue to be perfected. And then if that wasn't enough, he adds that phrase for all time. What? Perfected for all time? So one way, though, always when you're studying the scripture is to compare, of course, scripture with scripture. And so you can see parallel statements in this passage that help you understand what perfect means. So you look down in uh, verse 11, after saying, make perfect those who draw near in verse 1. So the, the, the sacrifices could not make perfect those who draw near, all right? That's the phrase he uses. Could not make perfect. And he even says, they can never make perfect. That's what he says in verse 1. But then down in verse 11, notice, he, these sacrifices can never take away sins. Exact parallel. They can never make perfect. They can never take away sins. 
And he has that same uh, take away sins phrase in verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Well, those are parallel. And so to make perfect must mean to take our sin away. Not in the sense that we are now suddenly sin-free, right? We all will struggle with sin until the day we die. But it means he takes away the guilt and punishment of sin. There's now no condemnation for our sin. He's taken away for all time the possibility of being punished for your sin. And so he uses this grand word, almost shocking word. He's perfected you in the presence of God. And then you can catch a little more of the meaning as you read on past verse 14. Because he's using this to underscore it. After saying he has perfected for all time, he says the Holy Spirit then comes along and bears witness in the Old Testament. That this is what he was going to do when he said... I will remember their sins no more. So you see, he's saying he's perfected you. Like he said in the Old Testament when he said, there will come a day and I will remember their sins no more. And then he describes it in verse 18 as forgiveness. So see, these are all parallel. Being perfected, having your sins taken away, remembering your sins no more, forgiveness. These are all saying the same thing. But to use the word perfect, we're not used to that. And we're uncomfortable with that word. Because we think it means that we are, you know, suddenly perfectly holy. But it means if it's perfect forgiveness, it's guaranteed forgiveness. It's trustworthy forgiveness. It's invincible, unassailable forgiveness. It's in unremovable, unchangeable forgiveness. It's perfected for all time, he says. It's unshakable forgiveness. So that you are completely and permanently forgiven. Ever and always forgiven. You get it perfectly forgiven. That's, that's where this text brings a sense of a of a clean conscience before God because it just lays hold of you and grabs you in its bold language. So it means that he has brought brought us into perfect, unbroken fellowship and favor with God for all time. You're in the favor of God for all time. And it's perfect favor. You're perfectly acceptable, perfectly qualified for this relationship with God because he has taken away your sin. You're perfectly qualified for this constant fellowship with God. He brings you into God's presence and you get to stay there from now on. You've been perfected. It's interesting how he uses this for all time because in verse 12, notice he says, He offered for all time a single sacrifice 
And then he says in verse 14, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, it's a once-for-all sacrifice that once-for-all admits you into the presence of God. What a glorious parallel there. There's nothing more he needs to do. There's no improvement that can be made on this perfection. And to underscore it, as we read, he sat down. Is there any bigger indication that that's done? That's over. That's, that's Jesus, may I say it, dropping the mic. <laughs> Finished. Sin is done with. They're admitted in the presence of God. I can sit down at the right hand of the Father now. Because it's done. And they are in there. And they'll never be taken away. And when you have God's favor, it means his perfect, it means his unlimited, boundless favor, a passionate favor, unreservingly treasuring your every good, constant, never interrupted favor. That's what it means. To be perfected in the presence of God. And you see, that has nothing to do with how good or bad you are in yourself. It has to do with Christ taking away your sin. So, first, we have a clean conscience because Christ perfects us. Secondly, we have a clean conscience because... Christ obeys the will of God for us. Christ obeys the will of God for us. And we, we can get at this better as we look at the contrast he paints as our own hymn that we sang painted, the contrast between bulls and goats and Christ. This passage in verses 1 through 4 talks about how inept you know, all of those sacrifices were. And then Christ comes along to do the will of God. Now, kids, I've, in fact, I've done this with some of you. One of the most fun things to do with my grandkids is to step on one another's shadows, right? And, and act like it hurts. So you're walking along, your shadow's there, and they jump on your shadow. Ow, get off of my shadow! And you, they do it again, and you're trying to dodge a shadow, and they jump on it, and it hurts, and you scream because you're jumping on your shadow. Of course, the thing about a shadow is it's not real. I mean, you've got this long shadow, and you can jump on it all you want, and I don't care, you know. You can drop a car on my shadow, you know. You can bomb my shadow as long as there's a shield. You can do whatever you want to to my shadow. It does nothing to me. It's a shadow. That's the point. Whatever those sacrifices were, they were just shadows. They can do nothing. I mean, if you had a hammer, a shadow of a hammer, you can't hammer anything with it. You have the shadow of a basketball. You can't dribble it. You have a shadow of a tree. You can't climb into it. You have a shadow of a bicycle. You can't ride it. A shadow can do nothing. However, this is the amazing thing about a shadow. It does point to a reality. There would be no shadow if there weren't the real thing casting the shadow. So, kids, you're at the campground. You're just 
sitting on the log with your friend and you're kind of looking at the fire you just started. It's late afternoon. And suddenly you see behind you rise up a big giant shadow that looks like a bear. Now you can't sit there and say, eh, no big deal. It's just a shadow. Because <laughs> you know that shadow is tied to something. And you better get out of there fast. Or hope you have a gun or whatever. But the shadow is pointing to something real. So those, these were shadows. There was something real that they pointed to, that they were attached to. Now imagine you're, say, in Nigeria. You're in this village and you've been three days without food. And you're kind of listless and you've been napping a little bit in the shade of one of the huts. And the sun's shining this way late afternoon. And suddenly you look to your left with these long shadows cast and you see these people and you, you recognize the shadow because of the hats they're wearing. You've seen those hats before because they're the hats of the rescue people. And you see in their hands they're carrying huge bags of grain. They're just shadows. You can't eat the grain, shadow grain, but you know that the grain is there. And it's coming. And there's, a, there's nourishment. There's salvation. That's what these shadows were. They were shadows of the salvation that was coming. They couldn't do one thing. They couldn't wipe out one iota of sin. Not one. Because they were shadows. But when Christ came. And with one single offering. Sin was put away because now the reality had come. This is the point he is making here. And it's as though you'd been in a bombed out city and you'd heard a siren that had not gone off for weeks and months. This constant siren that told you bombs are being dropped. We're under Attack! Bombs are being dropped. Bombs are being dropped. And then one morning you wake up and the siren is off. And the bombs are not dropping anymore. And the war is over. That's the sense of Christ. The siren is gone. The wrath of God that hung over all this time. That Paul talks about in Romans 3 as being that God forbeared, forbore our sin. He was forbearing all that time because sin, these, these aren't doing the job. They're never going to put away sin. And so he was forbearing with our sin. The siren was still on. And now the siren is gone for you. It's gone. There's no siren in the presence of God. Because Jesus has put away sin. And that's why in verse 5, Christ comes into the world and he says, He knows so well. It's not these sacrifices and offerings that you desire. A different kind of offering must be given up. These accomplish nothing. What was needed was the sacrifice of Christ's perfect obedience in giving up his body on the cross. And that's why body is mentioned. The body, the incarnation happened so that in that body 
he could act in perfect obedience and give himself up for the Father. That was, the, that was what pleased the Father. And it's mentioned three times, the will of God, the will of God. By this will, he says in verse 10, by this will, that will we've been sanctified. We'll look at that word sanctified next week, by the way. But the action of Christ, the obedience of Christ, this was the sacrifice that wiped out our sin. This magnificent, this glorious, this stunning obedience that soared beyond imagination, that stretched out an account of boundless canvas of beauty that exhibited the perfection of God. The Father saw infinite self-giving in His Son, you see. The Father saw the Son's overflowing love for His people as He died. He saw a towering, majestic, selfless love that was like His own. That obedient sacrifice alone could make atonement for sin. A sacrifice of such transcendent loveliness. All of our sins were punished in him and they were buried away forever in him. It is called in Ephesians 5 2, the fragrant offering. The fragrant offering of Christ before the Father. And the beauty of his obedient sacrifice blots out your sin. Your sin is atoned for. It's hidden in that sacrifice. Now we're not associated with our sin. It is gone. You know what you're associated with? You're associated with that glorious obedience. You're associated with that fragrant offering forever. That is your identity. That is your dignity. That you're associated with the obedient Christ. You're seen in Him. You come to the Father in Him, presented in that sacrifice. And so, His magnificent, stunning obedience is what you are housed in and sheltered in and covered in forever. Forever he has perfected you. For all time he has perfected you. And so the father basically says, I can judge sin no more on anyone who hides himself or herself in the shade and glory of my son. It is done. Sin is gone. I will remember their sin no more. I love what the Southern theologian James Henley Thornwell said. God deals out blessings according to his estimate of Christ. How highly do you think he estimates his son who gave this obedience? 
How much do you think he honors his son in this obedience? That's what you are associated with. That's how you are perfected in his presence. That's how you are brought to the Father. Within, housed within, sheltered within this glorious obedience of Christ. And so let's talk about a little bit about how we apply this to our lives. So you have this clean conscience. You can have this clean conscience because he's perfected you. You have this clean conscience because he's done the will of God for you. And you are hidden in it. You see, this allows you now to face your sin and to face your sin in the presence of God. Not to run from God or to hide from God or to think God's going to reject you as you talk about or, or even admit to yourself your sin. In the face of your sin, even in the sudden terrible new outbreak of sin in your life or some sudden realization of sin in your life, you still can maintain a clean conscience before God, which means not that you're perfect. That's not the point. It means that you're, you're clean before it. You're, you're not punished. Your sins are not punishable anymore. He doesn't push you away. He embraces you in his presence, even as you discover your sin. You know that all judgment has been taken away from you. And it's only in the enjoyment of his favor that allows you to admit your sin And to to face it honestly. Otherwise, you're covering it up. You're running and hiding and making excuses. Or you're getting sullen and angry and huffy and even offended when your sin is pointed out. It's because you're scared. You know that. It's because you're scared to death that he's going to reject you. But it's in the presence of God the conscience that's been cleaned, that knows that there is no judgment. That gives you the power and the desire to face your sin and repent of your sin. And then to begin to obey him with gladness from the heart. There's no change. <laughs> there is no change except within the presence of God. Safe in the presence of God. You will never change one single thing in your life by trying to do better, cleaning up your act, fixing yourself, making yourself presentable to God. No, it's all helplessness, admitting, but all the while knowing I am forever favored by God. That's how change happens. I love Sugarland's Little Miss. Little Miss, do your best. Little Miss, never rest. Little Miss, hide your scars. Uh, we know a lot about that. You don't have to hide your scars anymore. You've got the favor of God. You've been perfected for all time. You're free to face it all. For some of you, the most difficult words to you to say to anyone, and sometimes especially your own family, even more especially your own spouse, is something like this. I am sorry I was wrong. 
what I said was wrong, what I did was wrong. I had a bad attitude. I was yelling. I was harsh. I was mean. Whatever. Just to say that. You can say it in the presence of God. You can say it because you've been favored forever. For all time. I'll close with this illustration that hopefully will help. Think of your life as a, a tapestry. And that word, the, the words of that hymn, bruised and broken by the fall, okay? Here's our tapestry that's been bruised and broken by the fall. And we bring this life of what Paul describes at one point, our former life as being hated and hating one another. Pretty good summary. Boy, I've been hated. I've been hurt. I've been hurt in so many ways. And sadly, I've hurt other people. That's our tapestry we bring, okay? Tapestry of pain and sin. A tapestry that's threadbare and torn and stained and dirty. It stinks. And when you bring it before God, you kind of think, no, 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 don't touch it. Don't, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But here's God, because all judgment is removed. All condemnation is removed. He takes your, the tapestry of your life into those hands that made the world. Those hands that were crucified for you. And he looks at a particular thread. And you say, don't, don't look at that. No, I know you're going to cast me away, aren't you, because of that. You're going to just cast me away. But no, he takes that thread and starts weaving it with new threads. And you say, oh, you're... You're, you're remaking my life. You're, and, and he starts weaving that together in terms of Romans eight twenty eight, when your works all things together. And some of the darkest threads in your life, you start seeing how he's going to weave those into making you a person of love, making you a person of self-sacrifice, making your life one of beauty, of pushing out into other people's lives. Even though you've been so hurt and you failed in such terrible ways. And he just has your life in his hands like he doesn't smell it. He doesn't see the stains. He doesn't see the darkness. He doesn't care because he's punished his son for you. There's no punishment. Only his work in your life. Because now... You are the workmanship of God. Could anything describe more that you're his, in his favor and all sin is removed? Then you're his workmanship. And you can freely begin to change and grow in his grace. Because you have been made perfect. And he has done the will of God for you. If you don't know Christ and haven't begun to trust in him, we set him before you. We set before you this this God, this God who would sacrifice himself, who would take your punishment upon you so that he could welcome you into his presence. Will you not trust in this Jesus? Let us pray. Lord, we... Rest in you. We adore you, Lord Jesus.
You've done so much for us at such a cost to yourself. Doing the will of God, which we couldn't do. Doing it in such a magnificent way that infinitely pleased the Father. And that becomes our identity before you. Our own Lord's obedience becomes our clothing instead of our filthy rags. We thank you for such a clothing, Lord Jesus, earned and won for us at such unspeakable suffering. Thank you for swallowing up our sins. Thank you that they are gone. Thank you for offering up a sacrifice of obedience that we could never offer up. Thank you that you take away our sins. Thank you that you clean our consciences. Thank you that we can be relieved in your presence. We can breathe easy. We can look with hope in the future and with hope in spite of our past. Jesus has done it well. We praise you and honor you in his name. Amen.